Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2139 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 7 of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you for being here as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. And today we're going to look at John the Baptizer who fully understood his occupation and his mission as, his, as a citizen of God's kingdom. And we're going to read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. I will read, be reading from the New Living Translation, but if you want to follow along on the Pew Bible on page 1650 and 1651, and as always, keep your Bible open during the message as we'll be referring back to this scripture several times. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time there with them, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. The people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. I'm not sure why John, the gospel writer, had to insert that, but he did. For clarification, this was before John the baptizer was in prison. Now, a debate broke out between John's disciples and certain Jews over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how I plainly told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand in with him and to hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are from of the earth, and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. He speaks God's word, for God gives him the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who does not obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Now, if you want a lively discussion at your next dinner gathering, when you have family and friends in, ask the following two questions. Except for Jesus Christ, who was the greatest person in the, who ever lived? And secondly, follow that up with, who, what made that person great? And I guarantee that second question will gather some debate because we all have our own standard of what makes a person great. Now, Jesus answered both of these questions for us. So we clearly had the answer. As he reviewed history from the dawn of time, he bypassed Abraham, 
the father of faith. Moses, that instrument that God used to deliver his people from bondage. He omitted David, that rugged and humble shepherd, that champion warrior, the king, the mighty king of Israel. He ignored Daniel, perhaps the most powerful and influential man who ever lived in the world, a leading figure in two of the greatest empires of the world. Besides that, he was a faithful prophet of God. He skipped over Noah, Samuel, Solomon, and Isaiah, and every notable figure in history. Instead, Jesus boldly proclaimed that one of his contemporaries was actually the greatest man who ever lived. And I've read this verse before, but let me read it again. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Now, John doesn't have the qualities and greatness that we prize and admire so much in other people. He didn't move among the rich and famous, nor did he move among the proud and the powerful. He chose the solitude of the desert wilderness. He didn't cultivate a suave image. He wore camel's hair and leather. He didn't rise through the ranks of politics or society to become the Pied Piper of men. He didn't rise through the ranks. He confronted and offended those when he spoke the truth without apology. Now, some adjectives to describe John could be that he was austere, he was frugal, he was aggressive, he was animated, and you might say he was even a little bit weird. And regardless, Jesus, who measures the greatness from a different perspective than we do, a different scale, John called, or Jesus called John the greatest man who ever lived. John the baptizer was born to be a forerunner. He was to fulfill that role faithfully. And if you remember a couple messages ago, I said a forerunner would go before the king and travel to a city and say, prepare the way for the king. The king is coming. Prepare for him. And that was John's message. He was preparing the way for the king to come into the world. The forerunner has three responsibilities. And if you'll take your bulletin insert, the top section there, it says the forerunner, and for those of you who have numbers four, five, and six in that first section, my apologies when I copied from one side into the other. It incremented the numbers, and I didn't catch it before it was printed. That's actually one, two, and three. So on mine, I have four, five, and six. So it humbles me every time I get up here because I, I find something that I've missed. So, but the forerunner had three primary responsibilities. First of all, the forerunner was to clear the way, prepare for the king to come. He was to make sure there was no bandits or any ruffians that would harm the king. His job was to remove the obstacles for the Messiah from people's minds. Jews had come to expect a powerful hero to ride in a white horse, brandishing his sword of righteousness, inspiring courage, and rousing national zeal. He looked to the Messiah to overthrow Rome, establish his kingdom, and then usher in Israel to a new era of military and economic abundance, to conquer the world, to destroy evil, and then to rule in perfect justice. That's what the people of Israel thought, but John the baptizer knew better. Now, King Jesus will do all of what I've just described eventually. 
And his second coming, when he comes back to earth to establish his global Eden, take that small E, the Garden of Eden in the Middle East, and spread it throughout the entire globe as he sets up his kingdom before, when Jesus Christ comes back. But before he does that, he must destroy evil in the hearts of his people. He must establish his reign and therefore conquering the evil in the world before he claims one square inch of the land for the global Eden. Secondly, the forerunner was to prepare the way with false notions that John has now pushed aside. John prepares the hearts by calling people to the baptism of repentance. And I'll go back into that a little bit, which I explained in a couple messages ago. And then thirdly, the forerunner was to get out of the way. He had to decrease so Jesus could increase. John chapter 3, verse 30. And that is what made John the baptizer the greatest of all men. As we go back and look at the passage now, starting in verse 22, it reads, Then Jesus and the disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time there with, with them there, baptizing people. Now, we don't know exactly whether Jesus himself baptized the people or his disciples did. That's not really the important part of that. This verse indicates that it occurred shortly after this dialogue last week with our message about Nicodemus. This passage occurred shortly after that. And it was probably within that first year of Jesus' public ministry. If you remember, Jesus ministered publicly for three years. Sometime during this first year, he met with Nicodemus. And then he went into the Judean countryside and started baptizing people. In John's flow, John the Apostle's flow of the narrative, the baptizer had his ministry in the wilderness of Judea. Simultaneously, when John the Baptizer was in the Judean wilderness along the Jordan River, Jesus ministered in Jerusalem at the temple and north of there in Galilee, but he left that middle section somewhat open. But the apostle, the John the Apostle builds a sense of drama and setting the following incident in its time and place. Now, Judea was clearly John the Baptizer's territory, Jesus and his disciples came to Judea, where they not only lingered, but they even baptized people. That should have been a direct affront to John and his ministry, because that was John's responsibility, you would think. But meanwhile, John the baptizer and his disciples continued their baptism at Aenon, which is the Greek word for fountain, and near Salim, which is Hebrew for Aramaic for peace. So it's a fountain of peace. Now, if you look at the other side of your bulletin, I realize some of the text is pretty small, but within that red circle are the two cities, Aenon and Salim. And this is where John the baptizer was baptizing people near the Jordan River there because there was plenty of water, it says. Now, you see the red arrow coming down along the Jordan River. Now, this is to indicate when Jesus initially established his public ministry, he went from his hometown in Nazareth down to Bethany beyond the Jordan, above the Dead Sea there, and that's where he baptized Jesus. And then Jesus went for 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then after the wilderness experience, he came back to the same location. And then that's when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is where it leaves us right now. John's wilderness disciples, of which John and Andrew were originally part of John the baptizer's disciples, he left, they left John earlier 
to follow Jesus and his ministry to become disciples of Jesus Christ. So we already saw at that point a migration away from John the baptizer to Jesus. And that, but the disciples that remained with John the baptizer continued their ministry of baptism. And it drew that inspiration from the Old Testament about that ceremonial washing of Gentile converts. And if you remember a couple messages or three messages ago, I talked about how John the baptizer says you must repent as if you were a Gentile even though you're a child of Abraham, that doesn't make you a child of the covenant automatically. You have to repent of your sin as if you were a Gentile coming into the covenant family. And that was that ceremonial baptism of repentance that John the baptizer was performing. But somewhere along in there, a debate broke out between John's disciples and the religious leaders from Jerusalem. The specifics of that conversation were not mentioned in John's gospel, and it's not important since it's not mentioned. But it, it caused a confrontation and it brought attention to John the baptizer's disciples. And they said in verse 26, so John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as that Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. That envy started to bubble up within them. They were losing their ministry, or so it would think. John was losing his congregation, which is the title of today's message. John's response demonstrates why Jesus considered him the greatest man since Adam. Not only did John avoid falling into this ego trap, he corrected his disciples by clarifying four points. And those four points are in your center section of your bulletin insert today, what made John the baptizer great? And I'm going to read the four points, and then I'll dig into each one. First of all, in verse 27, all leaders serve at God's pleasure. Second, verses 28 through 30, John's ministry had always been to introduce Jesus as the Christ. Third, in verses 31 through 34, Jesus Christ is the author of truth. Opposing him opposes reality. And fourthly, Verses 35 and 36, the Son of God is the supreme ruler of all that exists. Opposing him is to choose his wrath. So let's dig into those four points. Verse 27, all leaders serve at God's pleasure. Now John's statement is absolute. It's no mistake that it is applied literally, but it also applies to everything in our lives, anything imaginable, our authority, the grace that we have from God, our income, our possessions, and even our next breath all come from God. All these things and hundreds of more gifts are from above, and they're more than anything that we deserve. Everything belongs to the Lord, as I've mentioned before. Every possession we have is not ours. It's on loan to be caretakers of those possessions that we have. He desires for us to have what he provides to us. Because all authority derives from God's sovereign choosing, no leader can legitimately claim any entitlement to their position, no matter what their position is. Those who claim to have or exercise authority by divine right fail to acknowledge the duty of God and become guilty of pride. We see in the past, sovereign rulers like the king say, I'm divinely appointed. Well, if they were, it was only because God allowed them to be so. 
The second point is John's ministry has always been to introduce Jesus as the Christ. Verses 28 through 30. John must have been incredulous as his disciples failed to hear his primary message and to understand his very purpose for being. He had clearly stated that he was not the Messiah, the anointed one from God, but he was the forerunner to go before the king and say, prepare the way for the king. He then drew on that familiar first century image to explain his attitude, which should have been the attitude of his disciples also as he talked about increasing and decreasing. But in the ancient Near East culture, the friend of the bridegroom had considerable more responsibility than what a best man would have in today's um, culture. In addition to helping the bridegroom prepare his home, and remember they had an engagement ceremony where they went into the temple and pledged themselves to each other, gave vows, exchanged gifts, but then they went back to live on their own. Up to a year's time would pass before they would come back together in marriage. In addition to helping the bridegroom prepare the home for that eventual day, the friend of the bridegroom would go to the groom's house and help him prepare that home. He helped direct that wedding feast. That week-long feast that they would have at a wedding, the friend of the bridegroom was in charge. He was that best man. He was the, the one that directed all the activities. But one of the most significant duties, and I think we miss this in our English translation is that he was to guard that bridal chamber during the feast. He was to make sure that no one approached that bridal chamber during the feast and entered into it. So the festivities would go, be going on, and then the bride, somewhere during that week, would slip out of the festivities, unknown to everyone else, and then go into that bridal chamber. And it was that friend's responsibility to make sure that no one followed that bride in and that he stood and protected that bridal chamber from, for the bride. That was until he hears the groom's voice coming down to the bridal chamber to enter into that bridal chamber to consummate that marriage. And once that had happened, the friend of the groom responsibilities were over. He had completed his duties. He had protected that bride until the groom was there to protect her. A friend's mission was now complete. In verse 29 and 30, it says, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him to hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. The third point is that Jesus Christ is the author, the author of truth. Now, we oppose him we oppose reality. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not have his origin here on earth. While he is completely human in every aspect, he is not merely human. While we became into being by human conception, Jesus Christ had no beginning because he was from heaven. You might say he had a divine conception wherein that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were one from eternity past. Consequently, consequently, the truth he proclaims is his firsthand knowledge. He came from heaven, so he knows the knowledge of heaven. It was not something that was received from some outside source. The baptizer reminds his disciples of their shared mission to proclaim the truth of God. And if you remember clear back last summer, 
the messages on the Sermon on the Mount, I said that our occupation, our mission in life is not what we do for a living, but is to build God's kingdom through what we do for a living. That's our occupation. And John the Baptizer is trying to get through to his disciples that this is their mission. This is their occupation to prepare the world for the coming king. One cannot proclaim truth and oppose the word, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, who is God. So likewise, we believe Jesus, to believe Jesus is to affirm the truth of God. And the fourth point is on verses 35 and 36, the Son of God is the supreme ruler of all that exists. Opposing him is choosing his wrath. If we choose to oppose Jesus Christ and God, we're choosing his wrath because he's given us an alternative. John the Baptizer concluded his correction of his disciples with this chilling warning. The Greek word for term translated wrath or judgment is orge, a God of love also has a capacity for anger. And we as his imagers have both a capacity for love and anger. However, the wrath of God is not the kind of bellowing anger that you associate with abusive people. John described the creator's response to sin through that Greek word orge, which means upsurging. And it, it's like that bile when you're sick at your stomach, that bile that surges up from your stomach into your, your throat. And this is the anger that God is talking about here. I don't want to get any more graphic than that, but you all know what I mean when that tends to start upsurging. And when used to describe wrath, it's a passionate expression of outrage against wrongdoing. Think about it if your family was being attacked and you had to do something, the anger that would bellow up or rise up within you to protect your family because you love them so much. This is the wrath or the judgment that is referred to here. In this context, it pictures a passionate, righteous anger of God cresting the walls of heaven and spilling over onto earth because of the unrighteousness that he has seen. And while it is indeed passionate, a passionate, upsurging response, it is entirely consistent with God's character. His character is love. And without question, his wrath can be fearsome if we choose to ignore him, yet it is controlled, it is deliberate, it is measured, and it is ultimately just. His wrath is nothing less than a reasonable expression of his righteous character, his unfilling love when confronted with evil, just like if we were to protect our own family members. Now, no Jew, Jew would admit to disbelieving God However, because Jesus is the word of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, failing to trust in him was the same as choosing to disbelieve God. And the Hebrew history is replete with warnings and illustrations of people following, falling under the wrath of God for failure to believe. And I refer to this as believing loyalty. When we believe Jesus Christ, we are loyal to him. If we cease to believe Jesus Christ, we become unloyal. John said to his students, in effect, don't forget that this rival that you are prepared to oppose is none other than God in human flesh. To oppose him is to rebel against the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, as described in Daniel. A more modern-day example of an impact that someone who sold out to complete what God has sent them to do for the kingdom of God would be Billy Graham. 
For 58 years, he preached at 417 crusades in 185 countries or territories worldwide, reaching 84 million people face-to-face and a total of 215 million people through satellite feeds and untold uh, many millions more through television. Graham was a spiritual advisor to U.S. presidents. He provided spiritual guidance to every president from Harry S. Truman, the 33rd president, to Barack Obama, the 44th president. One of the biographers has placed him among the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. And because of his crusades, Graham preached to more, the gospel to more people in person than anyone in the history of Christianity. And God blessed him with a long life. He lived to be 99 and died in February of 2018. And I just read something this week from his son that if you count the nine months he was in his mother's womb, he lived 100 years. Although undoubtedly, Billy Graham was human, and I'm sure if we dug into his life, we would see flaws in his life. It was difficult being away from his family all that time. But he always directed his success and his fame back to Jesus Christ. Because you see, success exposes a man to the pressures of people and thrust a temptation on them to hold on to those gains in fleshly methods and practices. And if you do so, you let yourself be ruled by dictatorial demands that require continuous expansion of your own world. And that's not what God wants for us. So success can go to our heads, and it will, unless we remember that it is God who has accomplished the work and that God will continue to do so with or without our help. If we fail to do what God can, calls us to do, he can take us out of the way and he'll bring somebody else up to take our place in the building of his kingdom. Now, the history has affirmed that Billy Graham was a reasonably great man himself. However, it was his reverence for Jesus Christ that made him so. And like John the baptizer, he recognized this need to decrease so that the Son of God might increase. So the last section in our bulletin today What can make you great? And you say, well, we're not supposed to be great. Jesus said John the Baptist was great. But let's frame it in the proper context. When I hear somebody is described as great or something in something such as music or sports or writing or leadership or in business or some other endeavor, I admire that person and I watch to see and learn from them. What do they do right? And most importantly, what did they do wrong? For example, according to Jesus, though, John the baptizer was a great man, more remarkable than any other person in history. So I want to know, what made John the baptizer a great man by Jesus' confession and endorsement of him? Now, this portion of the narrative describes John's reaction to a prickly situation, the life of a leader, a leader who was being usurped by somebody else. Jealousy and envy are rife in today's common in today's churches and are rampant as ministries grow and those who are not having as much success envy and are jealous of that. And because difficulties often reveal a person's character, this incident provides the opportunity to observe John up close and personal to glean several principles that will help us. 
to imitate his kind of greatness. The first of all is all leaders serve at God's pleasure. And in your bulletin, I say, you serve at God's pleasure. Verse 27. And this is the same point as the first one under John, because they're the same. If we want to be great like John the Baptist was great, we need to follow his guidance. Everyone, at one time or another, has been overlooked, ignored, underappreciated, or unjustly passed over for promotion or honor. Now, for me, it takes me back to my middle school and high school years. And if you think I'm short now, I was really short. When eighth graders were put into the high school, I was the shortest person, guys and gals. I was four foot seven at that point. The senior girls used to come along and say, oh, isn't he cute? Of course, I thought it meant cute, you know. They just thought I was like a little puppy dog, maybe cute. And I experienced the times where teams were chosen and for intramural athletic events, and you would choose the ones you want most, and I'd be sitting there on the bench waiting for the last one to be chosen because I would probably be close to that. I've overcome that, believe you me. But it's a time where we see others succeeding, and we want to succeed. Success of another person didn't impact John the Baptizer. On the contrary, he rejoiced in it. In doing so, he echoed the psalmist who wrote in Psalm chapter 75, verses 6 and 7, For no one on earth from east to west or even in the wilderness should raise a defiant fist to God. It is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. It would do well for our world leaders to understand and to read this psalm and take it to heart. It is God who decides who will rise and who will fall. There's an essential perspective to keep when we're struggling to succeed. But more important, when we have succeeded, we need to keep that in perspective. All who serve God do so at his pleasure. Second, your joy comes from serving God, not your, your title or your job description. But let's face it, titles and job descriptions today are very important in our culture. Pride craves the approval of others, and people in powerful positions get plenty of applause and affirmations. John, however, refused to fall into that trap. Instead, he found joy in serving the Lord, fulfilling his role that brought glory to God rather than to himself. John's illustration described him as the best friend of the groom who delighted when he completed his task by stepping aside for the groom. Titles and honors throughout our lives come and go. Our relationship, though, with the Lord, though, will stand forever, bringing more joy than we can describe. And thirdly, a genuine humility calls to Christ, not yourself. In verses 30 through 34, some Christians unfortunately have a, mad, a sad misconception that genuine humility stems from feeling worthless and nothing can be farther from the truth. They mistakenly thinking that decreasing of self will increase Christ. If they dump on themselves, that will somehow elevate Christ, but that's not how it works. That sounds more like depression than joy, and truth be told, that focus is still on yourself when you do that instead of on Jesus Christ. John regarded his exaltation in Christ to be a source of joy, the only hope of decreasing self 
is by increasing Christ. Don't waste your time trying to decrease yourself by looking super, super humble. That's focusing on the wrong object. That's still focusing on yourself. You'll dig yourself in the hole trying to act humble, appear humble, or sound humble. And before long, you'll be the proudest person around. Instead, stand aside. Forget yourself as you exalt Christ. Turn to him for glory, and without ever knowing it, humility will naturally emerge. And I have an object lesson today. We're going to talk about envy and jealousy, and we've talked about it a little bit already. But the green envy that we have in our lives, when we become envious of others, our heart turns green, and you say, well, what can I do to separate this envy? How can I, Christ, increase? How can I decrease? How can Christ become greater and greater? I become less and less. What can I do to get rid of this green envy and jealousy in my life? Is there a way to do it? How can I separate it? I don't think there's a way to separate this coloring out of this. But the only way to do that is to fill ourselves with God's love, with his word, with the Holy Spirit. And the more we fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit, the less and less that green envy, that sin that's in our lives, that's taken hold of our lives, will be ridden. We will decrease as Christ increases into our lives until we are made pure. Good excuse. We're going to get a drink of water. And our lives become clean only by the filling of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. The more we take in God's Word, the more we'll become like Christ. The more Christ will become in our lives and the less we will be our own envy and jealousy. And as you seek to apply these three principles, beware of two common traps, envy and jealousy. People who confuse these two fears often do so because of the dread of not having. And it fuels both of these fears. Envy, our empty hands are wanting to grab something that someone else has. Jealousy is holding on so tight that you never want to empty what you have and help others. Envy languishes in self-pity and it doesn't because we don't have what others have. Jealousy rants in paranoia because it fears losing of what we do have because we don't even feel worthy of having what we do have. John the Baptist avoided both traps, clutching to nothing and releasing everything to go the Lord. He lost his following. He lost his popularity. He lost his will for Christ's will. He recognized that God owns it all and deserves all the glory. He knew that we find our greatest joy by fulfilling our purpose, and our purpose is to glorify God, to fully enjoy him forever. Is it any wonder that John the baptizer was considered by Jesus Christ himself the greatest man who ever lived? And yet, the least of these in God's kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Oh, to be like John the Baptist, even more so, oh, to be like Jesus Christ. And that's what the lesson we want to learn this week. How to increase Christ in our lives so that ourselves will decrease. And next week, we're going to learn about a thirsty water, or a water for a thirsty woman. So I would ask you to please read John chapter 4. 
verses 1 through 42, in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time where we can dig into your word to learn about the man you considered the greatest man who lived, that's John the Baptizer. Help us to emulate his philosophy and his outlook on life, realizing that you must increase in our lives. And as you increase into our lives, it will spill out all that sin, all that envy and jealousy out of our lives, that we may become pure, to be more like that perfect imager, Jesus Christ, as we image you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.